Hello, welcome to Hollywood and Beyond with Stephen Birmingham, and I am T.C. Warner. Hi, this is Carrie Genzel, actor, producer, writer, and creator of stateofslay.com. Slay in this case being an acronym for self-love, appreciate you. State of Slay is a blog that I created documenting my journey from the darkness of depression to living in the light today and focusing on the positive. It is a safe place to encourage one another and walk together as we find empowerment and self-love. I hope you'll join me on my blog, stateofslay.com, where we walk and slay together. Slay on. Hi, friends and listeners. This is host Stephen Brittingham. Do you happen to have a question or a comment for me? Or perhaps you feel that you might make an interesting guest here on Hollywood and Beyond. Whatever your reason may be, please feel free to contact me anytime directly at the show's official email address. That would be hollywoodandbeyondshow at gmail.com. That is hollywoodandbeyondshow at gmail.com. I look forward to hearing from you soon. You can receive all the latest episodes of Hollywood and Beyond with Stephen Brittingham delivered to your favorite listening device by subscribing to the show on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or whatever happens to be your favorite podcast listening service. Don't miss out. Tune in. Hello, friends and listeners. Welcome to Hollywood and Beyond Podcast. I am your host, Stephen Brittingham. Thank you for listening. My special guest today is Emmy Award-winning actor Vincent Irizarry. As an actor, Vincent's contributions to daytime television are both vast and impressive. He first arrived to the daytime scene on The Guiding Light back in 1983, eventually appearing on Santa Barbara, returning back to Guiding Light, and on to Pine Valley on ABC's All My Children, once again providing a memorable performance wherever he went. Down the road, he even rocked Genoa City on The Young and the Restless as David Chow. That's a character I remember very well. Recently, Vincent appeared on another Bell production, The Bold and the Beautiful. Our diagnosis, by exclusion, basically an educated guess is years of cumulative damage caused by anti-rejection drugs for the heart. But I've never had any problems. Well, you have problems now. And we have much better anti-rejection combos available to us today than when you got your heart. Why don't we start her on one? That's the plan. Unfortunately, that won't reverse the damage that's already been done. What will? Nothing short of a new kidney. Another transplant? No, I, I can't. You can't, Katie. You know, Katie, I would have agreed with you, but despite everything, given your workup, you're an excellent candidate. Aren't there artificial kidneys yet? That's basically what dialysis is. Now we can start you on that right away, tonight, and you'll be feeling much better by tomorrow. And then I can go home. 
Infection is a real danger with dialysis patients. I'm sorry, Katie, we're gonna have to keep you here. At least until you get stronger. How long will that be? That's hard to say. Until you find her a new kidney? And Donna and I are her sisters. I'm sure we must be a match. How long will, will it take to find out? A few days. And given Katie's history, getting her off dialysis as soon as possible would be optimum. Additionally, if we can find a donor for her now, she would never need to go on a waiting list. All right, look, I know this is a lot to absorb, so why don't you discuss this with your family, all right? I'll check in on you periodically, and in the meantime, my colleague, Dr. Davis, one of the top nephrologists in the field, she'll come in with a nurse, and she'll set you up with dialysis, all right? Thank you, Doctor. Sure. Thanks. As you might imagine, Vincent has worked with a long list of highly regarded actors and writers over the years, many who were actually considered some of the great ones, so to speak. It is clear to see, though, that today Vincent can also be included on that list. It's an honor and pleasure to have him on the show. Vincent Irizarry, welcome to Hollywood and Beyond. Thank you. Thank you, Stephen. It's a pleasure to be here. I appreciate it. You are most welcome. It's so nice to have you here today. Um, I, I just can't thank you enough. I really appreciate it. Well, I hope that you and family are all safe and well during these ch challenging times that we are all facing. Yes, it's, it certainly has been challenging, and I have had several family members who have contracted the, the, the virus, uh, but they've all recovered. Um, it's been a tough few, few weeks, actually. I've uh, my, my, my daughter and my, my son, um, both of them, their grandparents, one, my son's grandmother passed away, um, and my daughter's grandmother on the other side, she, um, she just got sick. She just got a, had another stroke. She's 90 years old, and, you know, so she's going through a tough time. And my mother just uh, was released from the hospital after four days um, for something that she was going through. She's, it's been a tough few months for, for her, and I... So uh, everybody's okay. Everybody's going, doing okay. Um, but yeah, it's been a weird time for everybody, I think. Yeah, just for us, that's for sure. Well, my thoughts are with you. That certainly is a lot to, to deal with. And um, I'm just going to be sending good thoughts to you and your family at this time. Thank you. Thank you very much. Well, where are you actually joining me from today? I'm actually in Los Angeles. Um, I'm here at, from my home here where I live. I live near Calabasas. Um, and yeah, so that's where I've been. And it's a beautiful area over here. It's, you know, probably like high 80s today, clear skies. Um, actually, after I finish this, I'm thinking about going for a hike up in the hills. It's really beautiful up there. At least you get some fresh air and could be a pout and, and just um, see nature. It's, it's um, for me, it, it's, kind of medicinal it's great to be able to do that so well that sounds nice so you enjoy walking i i do i do i especially honestly since the the pandemic and the shutdown um i've been doing that a lot more than i was doing before prior to that i was going to the gym and doing a lot more cardio and but obviously gyms where i'm living right now are closed um so it's nice to go and i've just I've found some amazing hikes that, you know, could be walking uh, for four or five miles. Uh, and it's just beautiful, absolutely beautiful and very scenic. Um, and like I said, it's very conducive, this climate here 
So I like to go either early in the morning when it's cooler or later in the afternoon, early evening um, when it's cooler. And so after this, that's probably what I'm going to be doing. So, Well, I hope you enjoy it. And it's a wonderful way to, to clear the cobwebs, isn't it? When you have a lot going on in, inside your sure, mind. Sure, sure. It it's just very therapeutic to be able to go out there and just clear your head and just take in everything and feel a sense of freedom during a time where there's so many restrictions. Well, Vincent, I cannot wait to discuss uh, more about your your career as an actor, such an impressive career. I have such high regards well, you. for your your acting talent. And I uh, just thought, though, that we would start actually from the beginning. And where are you from? Okay. I'm from New York. I was born in Queens, New York. Um, lived there till I was eight years old. I moved out to Long Island uh, in an area called Lake Grove, Lake Ronkonkoma. Um, I lived there and yeah, I have five brothers and sisters. My parents, they got married at 15, 16 years old, um, and I'm one of six kids. They had me at 21. I was their third child. So <laughs> when I turned 21, that, that gave me a, a whole new perspective on my parents and uh, a renewed sense of uh, appreciation, respect um, for the sacrifices they had made at such an early age to raise a family. Um, and. You know, all my brothers and sisters were very close, and my my parents as well. We've, we've um, you know, we're a very close knit family, and I'm very grateful and feel very, um, you know, just very prized to be able to do that, to have to say that. So it's great. Well, it's very nice to hear that. Well, I'm wondering, what did you like to do for fun while you were growing up? Hmm. Okay. Um, well, piano. I, I studied piano growing up as a kid. Started, I think, it was around eleven or twelve years old. Uh, so that was something certainly that I did for fun. Um, I also did photography since I was eleven years old. So I used to, you know, this was before the digital age. So was, I would, I would develop my own pictures, uh, my own film, um, using dark rooms, and um, at an early age. So that's something that I carried with me for many, many years. Um, so those are the things I did for fun and also just listening to music. I loved the, the music of that time, um, especially music from the 60s and 70s, especially during those times. Um, so, yeah, I loved going to concerts, which I did from a very early age. So that was something that, for me, was something that I, I, I got very excited about doing, getting to see bands like Led Zeppelin and Pink Floyd and, um, you know, just so many, so many wonderful, wonderful talents at that time so very interesting it sounds like you were already starting an interest in the arts with uh, music and and all of that yeah oh absolutely that's something from my earliest years i i felt that that's where my heart was leaning to into the arts um which i went to berkeley college of music right after high school for that reason but it was there that i started acting as well and then fell in love with acting and decided to pursue that so yeah Vincent, I'm very curious, before we discuss your start as an actor, what type of movies did you enjoy watching as you were growing up? Was there a certain type of movies that you just found yourself enjoying the most? You know, I, I loved movies. I, I always loved movies. My brother Frankie and I, my older brother, he and I would sneak downstairs after my parents went to bed and we'd sit down in front of the TV, literally like right in front of the TV so we'd keep the <laughs> volume down. And we'd stay up to like four o'clock in the morning watching the late <laughs> show, then the late, late show. And we'd watch movies like old Cagney movies, you know, or Jimmy Stewart movies, or, you know, anything like that. And uh, certainly if, uh, when I was growing up as a teenager, a movie like The Godfather came out and 
Um, you know, it was, it was such a sort of like a golden age of filmmaking at that time with movies like Network, you know, written by Patty Chayefsky, which was absolutely brilliant. And so many, The Exorcist, I mean, that was all from the 70s. The yes. filmmaking at that time was really quite amazing. Um, so uh, uh, filmmaking, movie making, it's interesting, though, I feel that what's happened is that that has been um, substituted by television production now. Uh, I think that the best storytelling in entertainment right now and the visuals um, with filmmaking and television would be with television. I mean, you know, when you have shows like The Sopranos that sort of like started this whole wave of, of producing for television and storytelling in such a way that led to shows like, like Mad Men or uh, Breaking Bad or you know, I'm watching a, a show right now. I'm almost done. It's the third season. I'm in mean, the last episode, actually. A, move, a show from Sweden right now. It's called The Restaurant. Um, in Swedish, it's actually, this, uh, this time is ours, it's called. But the, for American audience, it's called The Restaurant. And it's absolutely fantastic. I just uh, loved every second of it. So it's interesting because I don't, I don't go out to movies before the pandemic. I wasn't going out to movies as much as I used to many years ago. I only go to the movies maybe about three or four times a year. Many years ago, as little as 15 years ago, I was going like three or four times a month to go to the movies. I just don't feel that the, the movies are at the level, the quality that they used to be, frankly. And I think like a lot of people were spending more time binge watching television because there's so much wonderful content on television right now of so many different genres. Um, so that's been very exciting. Well, I will have to be sure to check out that show. Um, no yeah, doubt about that. Well, you must uh, recall, Vincent, that back in those days, uh, talk about uh, sneaking down to watch television late at night. I'm sure you came across a few channels where the American flag was up and they were playing the anthem because they were off the air. <laughs> Absolutely. That's what they would do at the end of their, their programming for the yes. day. They would do that. That's absolutely true. It's very true. That's funny. That's funny. You know? Yeah. And it was also the, it was the time it was also the time that at 10 o'clock, it would be like, it's 10 o'clock. Do you know where your children are? Um, that would also come. That was something that started in the 70s as well. It was kind of funny. Vincent, you mentioned music and photography, but how did the actual yeah. interest in acting begin? I suspect it may have to do with just your general love for movies to a certain extent, but what got you going to actually acting? Well, it, it, what happened was I was going to school at Berkeley College of Music, and I became very close friends with my English teacher there, a man named Ryland Brenner. And he started a theater company at, at Berkeley. Um, and he had asked me, he asked if I had ever thought about acting. And I told him, I said, you know, it's one of those things I've always had a natural um, curiosity about, especially because of my love for film. Um, but I really never got, in, got off my backside to do anything about it. I mean, it was, I was 17 years old at the time when I first started going to college. Um, so, and he told me, he said that he had a play that um, he was going to be producing. And it was a three-person play. It was a one-act play called Death Watch by a French uh, playwright and, and novelist, um, Jean Genet. And he said, there's a role that's one of the lead roles in this that is fantastic. And I think that you'd be great at it. So I actually, I took the play, it was right before our Christmas break or holiday break, and I took it back home to Long Island with me, and I didn't know how to even approach working on a, a role. Um, so I was upstairs in my bedroom at my parents' house, 
um, every day reading over out loud the entire play and acting the whole play out, every character. Um, <laughs> and it was very loud at times. And my parents, my family was like, what are you doing up there? And I was like, You're well, talking I'm, to yourself. <laughs> so I'm, I'm sort of experimenting in the possibility of acting in a play. And um, so when I got back to Boston um, to school, I auditioned for my teacher and he offered me the part. Um, so basically I carried that same type of, uh, work ethic and, and, uh, sort of practice, you know, methodology, uh, into working out the role for the next month, I guess it was, or three weeks. And I was going on the rooftop of, um, of Berkeley College of Music where the dorms were. I would go on the rooftop and, and literally act out the entire play on the, uh, out in the daylight on the rooftop every day and practice it and to learn the lines and learn everybody else's lines and get a sense of who the character was and breathing life into the lines. And it must have, it must look like a crazy person to anybody that was in a building that was higher than the rooftop where this was in, in Boston, which was not very high. Um, so they probably thought I was like a nutcase up there. But I <laughs> fell in love with the process. I just absolutely fell in love with the process and um, you know, just to be able to examine, study the pathology of, of a, a person, a character that was put to words. Um, I loved it. And for me at the time when I was going to Berkeley, I was really kind of like a little withdrawn socially when I first went there because I was practicing piano sometimes six hours a day in the rooms, the practice rooms, the size of me and the piano, basically. So when you do that, when you're focused that much, you tend to like withdraw a little socially when you're out of those rooms. And I, you know, I'd be like the person in the elevator with my head down, not making contact with anybody. This character was so explosive and it was so intense. Um, it really was for me, it was rather therapeutic for me, frankly. Um, and it was, it was an epiphany to be able to have that experience to express myself so openly and so intensely. Um, in front of a, a group of people in audience. It was really quite amazing, frankly, and it, it helped open me up um, socially. So, in fact, it's kind of funny. I literally just posted last week on Instagram a photograph from that play that I had dug up. I was going through a box of some stuff, and I found this picture, and it's a picture of me from the play that I literally just posted on Instagram just uh, uh, about four days ago. It was actually on Saturday. Yeah, that's what I, I wrote something about it being on Saturday, so... I will have oh, to take so a look long, at that. So long ago Saturday. Yeah, it's really it's a it's a really cool picture. I've got a lot of hair. <laughs> it's like I still <laughs> even today my I have a my my sort of a quarantine uh, look right now is I've got my my hair is longer than it's probably been in about twenty years. I've got a beard. Um, you know, I literally just booked a, a role as a in a western, which I never imagined I'd be able to do. And it's funny because I said it to somebody about a month before my girlfriend said to her before I got this audition, I said, you know, I think I could do a Western now. And the first audition I got was for this Western called Wild West Chronicles. And I got the part. So um, I definitely look like I could have lived in the Wild West. That's for sure. <laughs> that's kind of funny. Maybe it was meant to be then, huh? I guess so. I guess so. Well, I wish you the best on that project. That sounds uh, very yeah, intriguing to me. And I have no doubt whatsoever that you would do a sensational job on whatever character you would portray. And Vincent, I'm thinking about your early days on daytime television, on The Guiding Light. Here it is, 1983, mm -hmm. the early part of the 80s. I'm wondering, is there a story behind the audition that you had for Guiding Light at that time? 
Yeah. Um, it was actually, it was my, I went in for the role. It was only supposed to be for three days. And I read for the casting director at the time, Betty Ray, who has since passed. And she was an amazing, amazing casting director. Um, and the scene was with my character, Lou Jack, following another character, Mindy, into the girls' room um, at college, at the college uh, dorm, where, where that dorm it was. It was some like uh, community center that they had the college. I followed her into the ladies' room, and I was flirting with her in the ladies' room. So um, for me to do that, I actually, with Betty, <laughs> I, um, I asked, I spoke to her. She interviewed me a little bit and said, okay, let's do the scene. And I said, do you mind if I walk in? So I walked back out to the production office to walk into her office. And I came in, and I literally laid down across her desk, took out a cigarette, lit the <laughs> cigarette, and then just started hanging out with her. And we were doing the scenes, but I was also improvising around the lines with her. And she was such an amazing casting director that she went with it with me. And right after I finished the scene, she says, Would you, can you hold on here for a minute? I'll be right back. And she came back with Gail Colby, who was the executive producer. She said, let's do it again. Let's do that again. So I asked that I'll, I'll go out. So I'll come back in. That's okay. And they'll do it the way you like. So I went and did that. Um, it was kind of funny because there's another producer who at that time was a production at that, that time was Hope Smith. She's a production assistant. She went on to be a producer on numerous shows after that. And she remembers that moment because I had to go into the production office where they were doing the work. And I, and I look at everybody they look at me like, why is he coming in here? And I'd be like, I'll, I'll, I'll be done in a minute. Just hold on. And they all looked at me, but she remembers that moment. It's really kind of funny. So then I went in and did the same scene for Gail Colby and they liked what I did. Um, I went to work. I had just started working as a waiter at Joe Allen's uh, theater, uh, theater um, restaurant row in the theater district. So I went there to work and it was going to be my first day with my, my station. I had been trailing for a few days. And uh, before my shift, my agent called the, the phone of the restaurant, which was, it was a phone behind the bar. I was before a cell phone and called and my the bartender said, Hey, you got to call it, pick it up. It's my agent. He says, you got the part. I said, wow, that's fantastic. It's three days that I went through the details. I said, okay, great. So I hung up and everybody at the restaurant that I was working with like, you're going to keep the job. I said, it's only three days. Yeah, I'm keeping the job. I don't know what's going to happen with this. So, but it was great. The three days turned into another three days in terms of the contract. And it really was foundational for my entire career, that role. It was my first TV job that I had ever done. I had only done theater before that for about five, six years. So it was very exciting, and it really did. It was the foundation of many, many years after work in daytime with the shows that I've done recently, Bold and Beautiful, before that, Days of Our Lives, and all my children, certainly, and the other ones as well. So um, I'm very grateful for that, that moment and that, for Betty Ray that she was open to me playing with the scene. <laughs> it was a lot of fun. It sounds fun. like it. Uh, <laughs> what a way yeah. to make an impression, Vincent, to really go for it. Well, it made sense. I, it was great <laughs> that she understood what I was doing because, yes. first of all, it's rather brash, you know, of somebody to walk into a ladies' room to follow a girl in there. It's beyond brash. It's, it would probably be it would consider illegal, but this was the kind of character that he was. And, um, and for me to lay down across the desk, light a cigarette... That was him. He had that sort of, he, was, he had a moxie, you know, he had that kind of moxie about him. So I was able to try to convey that in the way that I did, and she saw it, which was great. I'm wondering, Vincent, before this audition experience, this uh, yes. amazing audition experience, what was your exposure to soap operas in general? 
were you a viewer or and if you were not was anybody in your family a viewer i was not not at all um no but my grandparents were they were avid um, soap watchers and it was before the time of vcrs and dvrs so when they watched their soaps five days a week they had to stop what they were doing have their lunch and sit down in front of the tv with their snack trays and eat their lunch and watch then General Hospital, and also Days of Our Lives. Um, and fortunately, my grandfather, he was a carpenter and an upholsterer, and he had his workshop in the basement of their home. Um, so he would stop at the same time every day. My grandmother would make lunch, and they'd sit there and watch their shows. And that's what they did. So, And it wasn't until my, when I was a teenager that my brother and sister um, got hooked on the whole Luke and Laura storyline. And... Um, and I honestly, I, I thought they were losers. I told them, you're losers. You're watching soap operas. That's what grandma and grandma was. <laughs> and so they're like, no, this is amazing. Oh, my gosh. You and they're trying to tell me and sell me this, pitch the stories. And I go, that's okay. I'm good. I'm good. And then, you know, one of the great ironies <laughs> of my life, years later, I'm working on the soap, and it, it was a career. Did they so tease you about that by I, chance down the road? No, they never did. They never <laughs> did. And I, no, they never did. I but I've That's recounted that story it. enough that I'm sort of teasing myself about it. And I, and it's also, I mean, the fact is I can't have a higher level of respect and appreciation for the medium than I do, knowing what it takes to put these shows on day in and day out, you know, five days a week throughout the year. Um, it just, it's just the fact that the writers themselves have to come up with so much material and, and the production values and the stories and, and the, and the, and the directors and, Everybody, all the people in the crew and the production office that are involved in it, it's, it's an enormous undertaking. It's Herculean, frankly. And I, I've always equated it with like um, uh, with a Sisyphus, you know, the, uh, the myth of Sisyphus, where Sisyphus is, is uh, fated, um, destined to push a boulder up the hill, a, a hill every single day. And he has to push it all the way to the top of the hill. At the end of the day, he gets it there. And then it rolls back down, so we have to start the next day and do it again. That's kind of how it feels, frankly, because we get these like scripts, and sometimes we're shooting 120 pages in a day, and you as an actor may have 60 of those pages, depending on how they broke up the production schedule for that week. Um, so it is. It's an enormous undertaking, but it gets done, and we have so much to be um, appreciative of and proud of, frankly, um, each and every person involved in the production of it. So I feel honored to be a part of it. Some of the hardest working and most talented actors are on daytime yeah. television. And, and your description Absolutely. backs all of that up, all of the, the effort and dedication it takes to just create one episode. Like you said, right. uh, let's think about the writers. Yeah. They have to sit down and go, hey, we've got another episode to write today. Yeah, there's no, there's no stopping to take a break and a breath. You get, it's constant. You're moving <laughs> nonstop. Okay, I, I don't know how many, is it like 260 episodes a year is what they used to, they used to do? That's a lot, you that's know? A lot. I, that's an enormous amount of, of production. And the first time I ever worked in a film was a movie with Sissy Spacek called Marie, A True Story. And um, that was when I was doing Guiding Light. It was 1984, it was my first film role. And I was shocked. It was while I was working on Guiding Light, I had to fly down to North Carolina to Wilmington. And it was then Dino De Laurentiis Studios at that time and uh, shoot there. Um, and I, I was stunned with the fact that my first day I had a page and a half. <laughs> I was like, what? Was Wait like a so minute, there's something missing trailer. here. And I was like trying to find the pace. It was, 
I loved it. I had a great time, but it was just like, come on, man. Can't we do this a little faster? This is Let's go a little bit it faster. Was. I'm ready. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. I'm trained to do much faster, that's for sure. Vincent, I'm wondering about some of your co-stars. There was two in particular I would like to ask, if you don't mind, and the first would be sure. Judy Evans. Yeah, yeah, Judy. Yeah, whose birthday, I understand, I think it was. I just saw something late last night, I think yesterday or the day before was her birthday. Um, Judy, Judy is wonderful. She's such a wonderful person. She's got a beautiful heart. And she's such an, a, an extraordinary talent. Um, and that she's shown that ever since I've known her since 1983, in whatever role she's working on, whether it's on um, Ben Guiding Light or it's been on Days of Our Lives, no matter where she works, she's, she's just spectacular. And we, we had such a wonderful working relationship with each other as Beth and Lou Jack. And, um, you know, and I, I just thought she really welcomed me onto the show when I first started. And especially since, as I said, I was a day player for the first few episodes. Um, but, and it was interesting too, because at the time, uh, Beth and Philip were the super couple, you know, on the show. And they started to test that with my character to have my character stuff falling for Beth, which is, you know, the, the street kids, punk street kid, the leader of a street gang who's fallen in love with the girl next door, you know? Um, and at first it was interesting because they, the audience was threatened for uh, Beth and Philip and, and they would sometimes write things to me, stay away from Beth and Philip. Um, or I'd be walking down the streets of New York at a red light and I'd be stuck with some fan who was like, you know, you should leave them alone. They're happy in love. And I'm like, okay, it's not me, but I have no control over the writing. I'm just doing my part. But it was, um, <laughs> the way that they, that, uh, the way that they laid it out, um, the story and the pace that they did it, it took about five months before. Well, yeah, it had to be because it was in April of 1984 where we went and shot a remote in Montauk. Um, and what we shot there as, as Beth and Lou Jack really was the turning point for the audience. Um, that's when they totally gave themselves over to the, the coupling of, of Beth and Lou Jack. And I'm so grateful that I had the opportunity to share in that experience with Judy. It really was very special for both of us. And it's just the characters, the coupling of the characters literally exploded. And it was something that had not been experienced on that show at any time before that. I mean, I literally was going from in the beginning of working on the show to like, you know, maybe 10 fan letters a week um, to at that point after that, I was literally getting over 500 letters a week from people all over. Um, it was crazy. It really was sort of a, like a phenomenon that happened in my life and the experience and it really did sort of set the stage of other roles that I had a chance to do afterwards because of the popularity of that character. So, and I, I owe it in greater part to, to Judy, you know, um, as being a partner with me and that she was fantastic. Just, I love it, the memories of it. And it's fun to see on YouTube, um, people keep posting like scenes of ours from back then. And a lot of them I totally forgot about even taping, uh, but to see them, it's just been a lot of fun. It's wonderful. So, and I'm sure that you know that she's had some, some issues, some problems over the last, um, I guess it's been about last eight, nine months. Yes. Um, but I spoke with her about three weeks ago, I guess it was, and she sounded wonderful. She really did. That's she was in wonderful. very good spirits, and I was just happy to hear her voice and hear that she was doing well. I've reached out to her since, um, and I haven't heard back yet, but I'm sure I will at some point. 
So well, that's nice to hear, and all my best to her. I really enjoyed listening to your description and memories of of working with Judy Evans. Yeah, Vincent, I'm thinking of an actor named Michael Zaslow. Gave a very uh, impressive performance on Guiding Light for several years. He had left, and then he returned. The first time I saw Michael Vincent was in the movie You Light Up My Life, and I just found him so intriguing in that film. I thought I would take this time to ask you what your memories of working with Michael was like. Well, it's interesting. Both he and I, we both were on the show the first times without working with each other. He wasn't on when I was on. I was not on when he was on. But we both returned to the show. He came back before I did my second time. And then when I came on the show, he was there. And we were, our characters were written to be sort of a nemesis to one another um, in competition uh, for Mindy, as well as for Beverly, for um, Alexandra Spaulding, my, my mother. Um, so there was a lot of really wonderful scenes that we had an opportunity to play. And he's, Michael was a fantastic actor, um, very talented. I, but I honestly, my, my memories, the, the most positive and most powerful memories that I have of Michael was when he was diagnosed with ALS, um, Lou Gehrig's disease. Um, and to see his, his courage and bravery of bringing that to the screen. I, I think at that time he was on one life to live. I believe at the time he wasn't on guiding light. Um, and that he played that out for the audience to show them what it what it would do to a human being's body and how it would affect them personally um, in their lives. And, you know, he, I had done several uh, benefits with him. Um, there was something we did at Yankee Stadium together when he was very ill. Um, and it was actually after he had passed away that the ALS Foundation asked if I would do a staged reading um, with Jerry Stiller on Broadway. Of um, It was uh, Tuesdays with Maury. Um, uh, where I was playing Mitch Albion and he was playing Maury, obviously, Jerry Stiller. And it was being directed by, um, uh, what's his name? I can't think of his name right now. Uh, Robert Downey Sr. is what it was. Um, and it was all because of my connection with Michael. And it was his wife, um, after he had passed away, that asked if I would do this. And I said, absolutely. So I did that in memory of Michael. Um, and it was very successful. And I had an amazing time working with Jerry Stiller as well. It was just, that was fantastic. What a, the man was so humble as a human being. He really was. He was so soft-spoken. And, um, you know, I rehearsed with him for several weeks and I worked on stage with him. And he was just so right there in the moment. It was a beautiful experience to work opposite him on stage, you know, which is live theater. is just moment to moment. It's so, that's really exciting with the audience there and experiencing the first hand. And I it just, he was the antithesis of his character on Seinfeld, you know, who was always screaming and loud as Mr. Costanza. Um, he, he was so gentle and soft-spoken. It was like, I can't believe this is the same guy. And I also worked with his wife um, and Mira on all my children around that same time. And she was the, she was the opposite of him in that way. She was very loud <laughs> and very bawdy um, in her comments in the makeup chair. She'd be cursing up a storm and talking. It was like, oh my gosh. So they were, they were an interesting combination of people together. Sounds and, like um, it. and they were just, it was, they were both so delightful, so delightful. But um, that was in memory of, of Michael that I was asked to do that. And I said, yeah, absolutely. I would do that. That was very beautiful. And thank you so much for sharing all of that. Sure. Sure.
Vincent, I thought we would venture onto some of your primetime roles. There was a couple of shows that you appeared on that I would just like to ask if there's a story there or some comments that you would like to share about the experience. And the first would be L.A. Law. That's a show I watched regularly back in the 80s. Yes. Yeah. L.A. Law. Um, yeah, it was great to get a part on that um, or a guest star on it. It was just it was interesting because I had just finished filming Heartbreak Ridge with Clint Eastwood. Um where I was working with him for two months doing that. And I literally left, I did a movie of the week right before that, that I started in opposite Nancy McKeon. I was in Vancouver for that and then got offered the role with Clint. And it was lit. I literally had to fly from Vancouver at the last day of shooting, fly to, to LA, wash my clothes <laughs> and put him in a, in a suitcase in my car and drive down to, um, what is it? The camp Pendleton over there. Um, and to a hotel because I was starting the next day at Heartbreak Ridge. But once I did Heartbreak Ridge, I was, my, I, I, my hair had to be cut because I was in the military as a Marine. So they had to literally like um, shave my hair off. I finished oh, wow. working Heartbreak Ridge and I had, I started, I auditioned for LA law and they really liked my audition, but they weren't sure if they were going to go with me because of my hair because I had no hair. I was like, you know, Paul. Um, so that was the reason that they were giving at the time that they were thinking about not casting me. So I had friends of mine, dear friends of mine who were up in Montana. They were going to be up there for a few weeks and driving all around Montana. And I just said, well, I'm going to fly up to Montana and spend time with my friends. So I flew up to Montana and drove all around with about a thousand miles around the state. It was just beautiful. And then I get a call from my agent or I called my agent. I think I had a call from there because they didn't know it would reach me. I was calling them every day to check in, and they said they decided they want to give you the part. You got to get back down here. So, <laughs> so I had to like <laughs> run to the nearest airport where we were um, and fly to LA um, to be able to do the show. So that was that was it was just kind of fun how it all came about, um, and it was kind of a whirlwind experience doing it as episodics tend to be. Um, you know, it's, you're in and out. It's just stay up for a few days, getting it done. Um, so yeah, but it was, it was definitely an honor to be on that show because it was probably at the time one of the top rated shows in, in nighttime television at the time. So yeah, it's great that I had the chance to do that. Thanks for sharing that. That was a fantastic show. And I wanted to be sure to ask you about that. Now, Heartbreak Ridge, I actually saw that in the theater, Vincent. I assume you portrayed one of the soldiers under Clint's command. Yes, I was forgetty. I was forgetty. I mean, one of the more iconic scenes where people always remembered when uh, we were called out to stand in line before we go out for training. And uh, he tells us to, to remove our shirts because we're all wearing different t-shirts and we we're all supposed to wear the same. He's trying to whip us into shape and I'm wearing my sunglasses. And when I take my shirt off, the sunglasses on the floor, I go pick them up, put them back on. And he comes over to me and he like just pulls the glass, not pulls it, like gently just takes them right off my face. <laughs> and then he steps on them, crushes them, and he looks at them and he goes, shouldn't litter, fag Eddie. It's ecologically unsound. <laughs> and, I'm like, and I'm like stunned that he just broke my, my shades. Um, that's just one of many scenes in the, in, the, uh, in the movie that was just, you know, that people remember. Um, and you could certainly see that, I think, on YouTube because somebody posted it recently on Instagram or one of those just recently about a month ago. 
so it's there. It's kind of fun. I had a lot of fun doing that movie. I just, it was, it was like one of my favorite summer jobs. I was like, we were, we got to shoot on the island Vieques in Puerto Rico. Um, we shot at Camp Pendleton. We took a helicopter out into the ocean to go onto an aircraft carrier for some scenes. That was really special. It was just the whole, um, you know, the whole environment of everything we're working with and working with the Marines and just being there and experiencing all of that was really very special, very special. And what was it like working with Clint Eastwood? Clint is a consummate gentleman and professional. I mean, honestly, he's very, very sweet, uh, very gentle, and very kind with everybody that works with him. And you could tell that by the... The fact, the loyalty that the crew has towards him because of his loyalty to them. There are people that have worked with Clint for 30 years on every production, and there are people in the crew will say, I will stop whatever I'm doing. If Clint calls, he has something he's doing, I'm there. And he, he's because he's so professional. He's, he's, he's probably, for my pace, is probably better because he's very fast. He, he'll do one take, two takes, maybe three, almost never. It's like... Let's just do it. Let's move it, move it, move it. And he's really, he hires actors to do the job that he hired you to do. He doesn't, he's not like a director of, for actors telling them what he wants them to do in every scene. He basically, the first time that we did a major scene with the ensemble that we had, we went to him and asked him, you know, what would you like us to do? And he just basically said, why don't you go over there and uh, do something? So like, oh, okay. So we basically <laughs> did the scene. It was a group of like six actors. We did the scene in the, in the set that we were working in, which is in a pool, a little pool room. Um, and he came over, watched our rehearsal. And then he said to the cameraman, okay, set a camera here. We'll do this set up next. And he basically set it based on what we were doing, what we had done. And that was the way we filmed the whole movie. Um, and I, it was really very freeing and exciting to work with somebody like that. And somebody I always appreciated Clint's style of filmmaking. His, his films are much more European in style than American films. And I, the way that what I mean is that the lighting isn't as glossy as some American films that we see, like overlit and overproduced. His are closer to sort of natural lights when you work with it. It's just you get a sense and the way that he shoots is very fast and even some improvisation if you need to, if you feel it in the moment, he'll go with it. Um, it's not as polished as production values as some other movies, which I prefer, frankly, what he does. Um, it, it's much more as an auteur, like, you know, a real director, artist, filmmaker. And his films are very consistent in that um, way. His entire um, you know, volume of work that he's done uh, his repertoire is like that. Um, so I appreciated working with him immensely. And we, and he's known for always bringing films in under budget and under schedule. And that's exactly what happened with us. We were done a week before scheduling um, and scheduling. So he, and he's just such a sweet guy. He'd walk around during, um, you know, our, our, our breaks, you know, our, our, with the commissary and, or in that commissary with the food He'd walk around. We had 30 extras on the set. He'd be walking around asking everybody how their lunch was and everything. He wanted to make sure everybody was okay. Really very special. Very special. Isn't it something to think if you take away his acting accomplishments, which, as you know, Mm -hmm. are just out of this world, and he was only a director? I mean, that would just be amazing in and of itself. 
I mean, his first directorial effort was Play Misty for me. And that was fantastic. I mean, that was a great thriller that he did. Um, but then he just kept going on and on. And I think that the, the, for me, that I believe the film that really kind of put him on the map as a director of great respect that people looked up, even though I, I believe that he deserved that accolade before, um, as well as an actor um, of one of great respect, was Unforgiven. Um, that, that role, it really, and I think another thing I would say about Clint, um, you know, and I, I don't mean to disparage other actors of his time, so I'm not going to name any names, but some of the actors that had the same type of um, clout, cachet, uh, uh, recogn- recognition factor, um, and stardom, um, international stardom at that time, they oftentimes you could see from the roles that they were picking, they weren't allowing themselves or showing the audience the vulnerability of what it would be like to, to age as a person. They were constantly doing roles where they were like, you know, somebody in their mid sixties and the woman in their early thirties falls in love with them or something, you know, I think that with Clint, he did that with Unforgiven. He really showed the vulnerability of age and the impact of that on, on a man, um, which was very courageous, really, and very vulnerable. Um, and he did that numerous times with other movies as well. So it was exciting to see that in him. And I think, again, that was how he all of a sudden people really started to take him seriously as an actor, um, even though he had done so much amazing work before that it was then that he was finally being recognized being nominated as a director and best film and everything it it was very special i think it was a very big turning point for him thank you for sharing that vincent that was absolutely fascinating Mm -hmm. thank you so much very informative too and i can't wait to ask you about a television miniseries that you were a part Mm -hmm. of with a stellar cast but first i would love to ask you if there's a story about appearing on Murder, She Wrote, because there's a show that had a lot of guest stars over the years. Well, it's kind of ironic that you said that to me, because I literally just deposited a check today for $18.44, which was a residual <laughs> from that show. Well, uh, there you Murder, go. She wrote. <laughs> it was $18.54 richer today. Um, so, well, but that's always a good thing. That show. <laughs> yeah, I would say this about about that, working on that show. I mean, you know, having the opportunity to work with her, she she is, for me, uh, the consummate professional. Um, she, um, I'll tell you, at that time, the show was on for eight years, okay? And when I went on that set, it was one of the most, pleasant sets I have ever worked on in television. Oftentimes when you work in television, especially episodic, you, um, you go on a set and everything's so fast moving and the people that have been working on the show for sometimes years, especially the cast, it's like you're just somebody passing through. It's not always, they could be nice, but not overly welcoming or, you know, and, this, and the set is basically like everybody's just moving. They're a machine. They're moving. They're moving. They're moving. But working with her, Angela Lansbury, um, she set the tone on that show where everybody was in the best mood possible. Everybody was so welcoming. And I believe it was because of her. She, I, I've always believed in this, a trickle-down effect on the soundstage is set. It's basically the people at the top, the stars of the show, they're the ones that set the tone. Um, and it trickles down to everybody else. And I can honestly say 
that have been on other shows where the starring, the lead actors of those shows were not that way. They were sometimes very gruff and impatient and snapping at people and people were, it was an unpleasant work environment for everybody. And it, and it literally creates that aura around you and you sense it and people are impatient then with others and, you know, frustrated and expressing themselves in kind of harsh tones sometimes. But that Angela was the constant professional. She when I, uh, I literally came in about an hour earlier than my call time because I knew she was going to be filming her closing monologue at the end of each show. She would have her five-page, six-page monologue where she would tie everything together and explain yes. why this person was the murderer, right? <laughs> With flash. So I wanted to see her, right, and I wanted to see her film that specific scene of that episode. So I came in like over an hour earlier. I asked him to pick me up early because I wanted to sit there. And I literally sat there right off camera watching her shoot that entire scene. And I could tell you, 8 o'clock in the morning, this woman, she went through every take of that, every camera shot of that in one take and moved on. And I was like, that's what a professional is. That's what you're supposed to do when you come onto a set. And I've been fortunate enough to work with others in the daytime community as well that were like that. And I, so I as an actor starting in television and having people like, like her, like Beverly McKenzie or um, even Susan Lucci and David Canary and, and Larry Gates and others like that, that, that exemplified that level of professionalism and respect for the people they're working around. That meant a lot to me to see that with Angela. Um, so I was really grateful to have had, had opportunity to work with her. And, and that's a wonderful memory that I'll always have being on that show. It was great. And that was wonderful to hear. That really warmed my heart uh, that everybody would feel mm. so welcome. And, and like you said, she yeah. had so much to do with that. Just a quick question. Were you the killer on the episode by chance? No, no, okay. I wasn't. Not, not this time. <laughs> a little spoiler <laughs> no, alert out no. there, but I just, I had to ask. No. I hope you understand. Well, I guess, <laughs> it, it, you know, this, this, uh, I guess after 30 years, it's about when I did that show. I think you're allowed to get spoiler alerts. If you haven't seen it yet, you know, it's okay. I, you know, yeah. you're probably right. <laughs> yeah, that's all right. If, if you haven't seen it by now, uh, you know, sorry about that. No well, problem. Lucky Chances, based on the books yeah. by Jackie Collins. What a cast. Yes. Uh, uh, Eric Braden yeah. appeared on this, which who you would work with yes, down the road. And mm -hmm. also Sandra Bullock, who was rising in her career. I just want right. to give you an opportunity to share your memories of that experience. Yeah. I, and also Michael Nader was in it, who I had an opportunity to work with years ago and all my children as well. Um, a lot of people, Nicolette Sheridan um, played my daughter in it. <laughs> I actually just ran into her about three weeks ago here in, in, in Los Angeles. Um, yeah, it was a lot of people. Um, how is she doing by chance? She's doing fine. She's doing okay. Her, her Unfortunately, her, her dog passed away. She had this oh. uh, a beautiful golden retriever um, for years. So she was a little sad about that. And sure. then we were talking about the climate of everything happening, which was kind of at the peak of a lot of the riots and, um, you know, curfews and everything. Um, so yes. it, impact on our community and everybody around us. Um, so yeah, it was good to see her and I run into her occasionally because we live close by. Um, so yeah, but she was, yeah, she was my daughter back then. <laughs> I, was, and it was, I have to explain to people that she was your daughter. I was like, well, the character aged from 24 to 64, 40 years span, 
11 okay, different age now periods. it's making sense and, <laughs> yeah and it's, but she actually when the character which was the character lucky um she was played as a young girl by elizabeth moss who then went on to Mad Men fame um but she was she was eight years old at the time um elizabeth um and so she was mine and, and sandra bullock's daughter um in the beginning of the movie and then she aged to be nicola sheridan um, but Elizabeth, yeah. And I, it's funny because I ran into Elizabeth Moss in New Orleans years ago, probably about seven years ago, eight years ago. And, um, when reintroduced myself to reminded her that we had worked together and somebody had, again, just posted from on YouTube on online on one of the platforms, I think it was on Facebook at the time, the scene, one of the scenes with us. And she was like, Oh my gosh, she said that was the first acting job that I had done. And yeah, she's, certainly done well. Um, yeah. And Sandra, she was just a delight. She was just fantastic. And it's no surprise that she became the superstar that she has become. And, um, you know, just, she, she was just every second was just, I, I, I have to admit, I mean, I kind of had a little crush on her. I couldn't help it at the time. Um, I don't blame she's just you. Beautiful. Just and so you know, beautiful in, in, <laughs> in body and spirit. She really is. She's just a beautiful person. Um, yeah, and everybody, I, and I would say with Jackie, especially, I just adored Jackie. And, um, when she passed away, I was in New York at the time. I was actually staying at the world of Astoria when it came out on social media that she had passed away. And it happened so suddenly because she had kept it a secret from everybody that she was struggling with cancer. And it was just, it was very, it was very sad, very sad. Um, but she was just a beautiful, beautiful spirit, um, all the way around an incredible talent, so prolific. And I'm so grateful to her because she was always so supportive of, of my work on her piece. And she was supportive of me for years to come. And, um, yeah, it was just what a, what a great privilege to have had the opportunity to work with her and for her. Um, and everybody, even Buzz Kulik was the director on that. And Buzz has since passed away. I believe this was so many years ago and he was in his mid seventies. Um, and it was tough for him because he had just been diagnosed with diabetes. But we worked on that film together, and he was he had, was the director of Brian's Song, which was back in the 70s, was probably one of the more famous uh, movies of the week that had ever been done with James Caan yes. um, and uh, as Brian Piccolo and uh, Billy D. Williams. Um, yeah, it was just, it, it, he had directed that one. So when I came to realize I was going to be working with the director of that. I was, yeah, I felt honored to do that as well. Cause that was for me in the seventies, that was like one of the best telephones that had been made. Um, but everybody, there was so many people that worked in that, on that yes. show. Um, just, yeah, it was a, it it's was a, a long great, list, great isn't it? Well, I'm just wondering, yeah, did you yeah, have was, any encounters with Audrey Landers or any scenes with her? Of course. Yeah. Yeah. I did have scenes with Audrey. We, we had scenes together. We actually even had to kiss each other on camera. <laughs> um, yes, yeah, so we, so yeah, it's a tough job, but somebody's got to do it. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It was a great character. He got to make out and have love scenes with a lot of people on that. Wow. Show. It was fun. It was, it was a great, <laughs> another one of the better summer gigs that I had. The only thing that was hard about it was that because of the aging, I had to be in makeup sometimes at five o'clock in the morning, four hours before, we started production because I'd have to, they'd have to age me throughout the course of each day, um, starting from the oldest and then take down the makeup to go down to my youngest. 
um, of the day's shooting. So sometimes I'd start at 64 years old and I had to do 55 and then I had to do like 42 and then I'd be down to 24. Um, so there were days that I was in makeup for nine hours in total, because it's not just putting on the makeup. Then it's sometimes an hour taking off the makeup and then reapplying another age that could take two hours, three hours. It was, and at the end of the day, my face was kind of raw because you're like using chemicals to get this glue off of your face. And, and it was hard because it was in the middle of the summer and we even shot several weeks in, in Las Vegas in the middle of July. Um, and we were shooting some days out in the desert with the desert winds and the heat. And you felt like you were in the inner machinations of a blow dryer. It was so hot and the wind, the hot air is blowing on you. And I'd literally be doing like a scene and I'd be doing the scene. It seems like it's going great. And then the director would call cut and I'd be like, what's going on? They're like, we got to get him back in the van, get him in the air conditioning. My face is melting. Literally, they're watching on camera the glue and the the, the, uh, the makeup is like falling off my face because of the heat. Um, so <laughs> it was tough. It was not easy between the that glue and the prosthetics easy. and everything and the hair and the coloring of the hair. But it was it was a great experience. I had a lot of fun and I, I loved knowing and, and working with, with Jackie especially. She was very special. Well, I'm really enjoying your stories. I imagine, though, that you no doubt went home very tired, if not exhausted. Yes, definitely. There were days, there were nights that I'd get out because, again, everybody would leave and I'd be there for an hour, two hours after getting off makeup and being called back in for five in the morning the next day. And I'd have to learn all my scenes for the next day, too. It was, it was a grueling schedule. It was exhausting. Um, I definitely felt it. <laughs> we definitely felt it. And I, pr- I really prized those, those days, production days, when I'd come in and I'll hit one scene. It was like, oh, thank you. <laughs> Instead of four scenes, different <laughs> ages. It was, it was a lot. It was a lot. But, you know, it was, it was a great experience. I'm happy I had the opportunity to do it. It was fun. Those are wonderful stories as well. Going back to daytime television, Vincent, when you arrived to All My Children, Anytime I've mm-hmm. asked anybody about memories of David Canary, I get the most amazing response. And I wanted to be sure yeah. to give you an opportunity to share any of your thoughts on David Canary. Well, I, anything that anybody said that's, that's uh, anything that's glowing of David is, is so well worth it and um, it, so well deserved, uh, frankly, because I, I, I will always consider David to be the salt of the earth. He, was a consummate gentleman and professional and just just a beautiful, beautiful person, spirit and soul. Um, from the first moment I met him, I, it, he was always so professional um, and such a brilliant actor. I, my, my first time that I ever worked with David, I was only hired for that job for three months. It was, it was supposed to be a three-month gig that turned into 13 years. Um, but it was this three-month period that I was like, great, I'm going to get to do it. It's like the All My Children uh, Fantasy Camp, get to work with every few months and go on your way. Um, And I knew that I was going to get to work with David. And it was a day that we were doing several episodes in one set of the scenes that I was in. So it was actually about five hours of shooting these scenes because of how many scenes we had. But the scenes that made it more complicated was that they all were scenes with both um, Adam and Stuart, the dual characters that he played. So it was my first time experiencing that with him, 
playing both characters, doing the scenes with him as one character, and then while well, he has a, a, a double doing the role, the, char- the other character, and then reversing it and doing the scenes again. And so that's why it took so long to do it. But it was watching him perform both of those characters, which was so distinct and so powerful, um, just beautiful, nuanced performances. I walked out of there and I, I just felt like I had just experienced a masterclass. Um, and it really was. And he, that was, uh, and I guess a level of, of performance that I had witnessed um, from him right up until the end. Um, it was, I was deeply saddened by his passing and equally so seeing that his faculties were starting to leave him towards the end. Um, because as I said, this was a man that was a constant professional. It, it, I can't remember him ever going off, uh, going up online unless it was like a flub of a word or something, but they could give him right up into his late, his mid to late sixties. They give him 40, 50 pages of dialogue. He's coming to work and getting it done. And he was brilliant at it. But towards the end, especially when we came back um, and did it for Hulu and for iTunes after ABC, it was obvious that he was struggling. And he was, and he was, the hardest part about it to watch was that he was more upset with it than others, and which obviously nobody would be upset. He was upset with himself because he couldn't remember his lines and sometimes couldn't remember what scene he was in. And that it was so painful to watch with him. Um, and I, I just loved him. I adored him and everybody did. There was, you know, I look at, at David and I look at others like him and I put Susan in this category as well, that there are actors that have every right, you know, really, if you're going to look at a standard of, of uh, behavior on a set, they, they kind of, it's, it's excusable to some degree that they could be divas, you know, um, because they have, they, their, their talent is so important and their, their role in the, in the success of the show is so significant um, that you get that feeling from some. And believe me, I've worked on some shows where they are definitely divas and not always a pleasant person to work with sometimes because of that fact, because they push it um, too far. But where David is concerned, I will certainly say, and, and that's why I put Susan in the same category, Never once did I ever feel that they were that way. I never got that sense from them. Um, David never would be that way. He was he was as respectful towards everybody that worked on that set as they were towards him. And I just loved working with him. It was a, it was just a joy, a pleasure to work opposite him. Um, so yeah, well, that was a beautiful tribute to him. Thank you so much, Vincent. Mm-hmm. I wanted to ask you, did you ever hear him seen in his dressing room by chance? Because a few folks have told me that they would often hear him singing as he was like clearing his, his voice, his throat. Yes, absolutely. I did hear him (laughs) sing. He was, he was, he was a baritone. Um, and he, I actually went to see him in a, um, it was a summer repertory company production of Kismet in Massachusetts. I went up there to see him do that. And I believe that was the last play that he had done. Uh, he decided that after that, that he was not going to do theater anymore. Um, so, yeah, so I did, I certainly had a chance to hear him sing. Um, and yeah, and he, and he heard me sing too. I mean, he cause I, I was, I was singing at the time and I was a trained tenor. Um, and, uh, yeah, he was very 
uh, complimentary with my work as well. And, and I remember it was one time because we were doing the Broadway Cares Equity Fights AIDS event that we did um, with ABC, some of the ABC cast. Um, we did benef- a benefit every year for, I think, like three years where actors on the shows of the ABC shows of General Hospital One Life and All My Children, some of us would sing on Broadway a song. And it was the year that I was doing um, This Is the Moment from um, Jekyll and Hyde, which was definitely apropos for my character, Dr. David Hayward, who was definitely a, a, a sort of a Jekyll and a Hyde, and he had his libidazone chemicals that he was sending out. So This Is the Moment is the song about him when he comes up with this this drug, you know, that changes a person's personality. So I was singing that for the event and I was doing it in rehearsal. And at the time there was no amplification during the rehearsal and the Broadway theater. And I sang it without amplification, without a microphone. And David and his wife came up to me. They were sitting in the audience during the rehearsal and they came up to me and said, we hope you can do it without, without amplification. We're blown away by how your voice is carried through this theater. And it said they reminded them of years earlier when people didn't use the amplification they use now. And I thought that was very sweet. Um, yeah, so they were very complimentary about my singing. Um, and, and he was, he was a wonderful baritone. He really was. It, was. it was a delight to see him do Kismet up there. It was great. Appreciate you sharing all of that. Thank you, Vincent. I've been hearing a lot about your character on All My Children. I am a young and restless and bold and beautiful viewer, Vincent, but I always made it a, a point to see some moments from all the shows, especially with me being an actor myself. I just wanted to stay on the pulse of daytime television, a medium I was very interested in and had much admiration for. And I thought I would ask you about working with Jacob Young. Yeah. Oh, Jacob. Jacob. Jacob's fantastic. Um, you know, he's a, he's really a, a wonderful actor. Um, you know, not only in all my children, certainly the work that he's done in Bold and Beautiful and also General Hospital, um, you know, and it's just to see Jacob. I've, I've known Jacob for many years. Actually, the first time I met Jacob, um, I don't know if you know if he remembers this. I think I brought it up to him years later. Um, I met him at a restaurant in Sherman Oaks, who's Marmalade Cafe. I was there meeting with a, a movie producer who wanted to talk to him about a script. Um, and he was there with his then agent, I believe. And he, it was when he had first gotten hired on Bowling Beautiful. It was the first job, I believe, that he did in daytime. Um, and he was such a, he was a kid. He was a kid. He was probably <laughs> late teens. So uh, I've, I've known Jacob for many years. And we were uh, obviously on, on all my children, our characters were, were, Definitely the nemesis to one another, um, you know, the butting heads constantly. So we had a lot of intense scenes together and a lot of fun scenes together. And Jake was always one that could bring it, you know, as an actor. And I just I, I know that that's still what he, he does today. He's, he's fantastic. He's a wonderful actor. And, you know, we've had the opportunity to do a few things together as far as like appearances together over the years. And, and um, you know, we always had a good time. Uh, he's a great guy. And I know that he's, living outside of Los Angeles now with his wife and his children. And it's just wonderful to see him growing up as a man and see the way that his life has um, been taken with the courses that he's taken in his life. So it's really nice to see that. He's a good man. Vincent, when I think of all my children, especially during the times that you were on the show during those years, you know, when Mm -hmm. I would watch it, 
it was there was something about the atmosphere of the show. It was like an actor's actor show. It was like a, this theatrical element to it. D- does that make any sense to you when I describe it that way? Sure, I can certainly see that. I mean, I think the level of performance from all the actors on the show was always very high. It was a high-caliber show. We had incredible talents on the show. And, you know, we had everybody from, like I said, with Susan Lucci, we had James Mitchell on there. We had, you know, so many, so many actors. Um, Fanola Hughes, um, you know, was on General Hospital. She crossed over as Anna. And um, a lot of really talented people on that show. Um and I'm, yeah, I, as I said, it was supposed to be a three month job. It turned into 13 years. So, uh, I had the opportunity to work with many of them, most of them, and, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, and I had uh, wonderful experiences with them. Josh Dumel came on the show for a period of time. It was my brother on there and March to stay playing my mother who has since passed away. Um, she was brilliant and she was my mother on, um, guiding light as well. She came and replaced Beverly McKenzie, which, Again, that was a Herculean feat to be able to take over a role that Beverly, an icon in the medium, uh, performed for years, and she did it brilliantly. Um, so, yeah, I, it was that kind of a, a, a show uh, where the performances really stood out without question. Um, Alicia Minshew and, you know, uh, so many others. Um, yeah, so, I, and I know I'm missing some names. Well, Katie McLean, certainly, and, and Michael Knight. Um, others as well, and they were on there for so many years, Joe Larson, and, um, you know, it, it was. It was such an, a wonderful show. Uh, the talent was just always at the highest level, and I'm excited that I got a chance to work with them. Well, it seems like it's no surprise that you eventually <laughs> wound up in Genoa City, uh, portraying a, yeah. a character that I found very interesting. And, Vincent, yeah. I must say, one of the things I enjoy... Uh, about you as an actor is just I just think that you're very commanding in your scenes and I don't mean that in a gruff way towards the your co-stars I just mean you have very strong screen presence and I thought David Chow had an edge to him and I remember that I looked forward to episodes hoping that your character was on there because I felt like he could really do anything uh, or or that that potential was there. And I just wanted to take this uh, time to ask you about your thoughts on working on the young and the restless. You know, I, I, I love the character. I love playing the character. Um, (laughs) It's another one. This happens a lot with me. Apparently it was supposed to be a three month job and it turned into two years. (laughs) Great. I'm noticing Um, the theme here. (laughs) Definitely. There's a theme there. It happened numerous times. Um, and I, it was just, the, it was a weird beginning because when I found out the character's name, this is, they were about to do a press release to let the audience know that it was going to be on the show. And, um, and I said, oh, that's great. Okay. You know, we had come up with a contract, so I definitely was going to be on. And they told me, they, the PR person contacted me and said this. They said, oh, that's great. But um, what's the name of my character? And they said, um, David Chow. And I'm like, you mean like C-I-A-O, like Chow, you know, said, no, C-H-O-W, said, okay, what's the story behind that? (laughs) And there was a story, there was a story that um, I was told um, afterwards that it was actually the name of a stuntman that was was actually dying of cancer at the time that had been in business for many years. And one of the writers was very close to the the man, the gentleman, um, and she asked, um, the head writer, executive producer, if she could, um, if she could name this, 
person in the script that name as a, um, you know, in homage to him. And at the time, um, Lynn Marie from the executive producer and the head writer, they had no intention of bringing my character on the show. It was not, it was just supposed to be somebody that was a suspect of a murder of the woman and general city. And this character, the person, David Chow lived in another town and was in a relationship with her like a year before or something, you know, I think that's a backstory, but he was never supposed to be on camera. Limerie Latham had always wanted to work with me. She told me the story weeks after I started working, we went out to dinner together and I asked her, how did this come up? And she said, well, I heard that you were leaving all my children and I had always wanted to work with you. She was, she was working on a nighttime show called, um, I think it was called homecoming at the time. And it was in the early nineties, early to mid nineties. And it was a nighttime show on a network. And it was about soldiers coming back home from world war two and the effect that it had on them, the war and the families and reassimilating. And I had read for that and been called in several times for this role. And she said that she wanted me for the role and that I had made such an impression on her at the time that she was pushing for me, but the network had decided they were going with somebody else. Uh, so I didn't get it. So she said she'd always want to work with me. And when she heard that the opportunity was there for me to come on the show, she offered me a job on it. And when the writer said, well, who should he be? She forgot the name was David Chow that they already said on camera and had it on an index card on, in a police detective's you know, room of the possible suspects. And she said, oh, just give him the character of, um, Car- I think it was Carmen's boyfriend. Um, he could play that and forgetting them is every child. So they said, Oh, okay. So they wrote me coming on the show and the character is David Chow. Um, so I was like, okay, all right. Well, maybe I was adopted as a young boy by Chinese parents. You never know. It could have happened, know. you know, you never know. <laughs> so that was that. And it was, it, what I loved playing about the, it, what I loved about the role, which that it's, developed in such a way that they brought in the quality that the character had a gambling um, uh, addiction. Yes. Um, and I had never played an addiction before, especially one like that. It's not a physical addiction like alcohol or chemical dependency. Um, it's something else. And it's just what I loved about it. It was how it governed every aspect of his life. I mean, his personal life, his professional life his physical life, everything was becoming completely polarized, um, eclipsed by that, uh, that addiction. Everything in his life was being impacted on the level to the point where you come to find out later that he's actually taken on the role of the hitman for people that he owed money to as a result of it. Um, so I really enjoyed playing that because it really brought out this darker side of his character and that he was sort of ensnared by his own compulsions. Um, I loved playing that because it was, you could see, you feel that he hated this part of his nature, but he couldn't stop himself. Um, and that was exciting to play. I just, I, I loved it. I loved it when they brought that element into the story, into the character. Um, and then he tried to kill his wife, Nikki, <laughs> to get her money. That's right. <laughs> so, he had yeah, that horrific that car good. crash. That's right, the horrific car crash. Yeah. Where um, apparently I, I didn't die on camera necessarily. I was laying on the side of the road, and Eric Braden's character, Victor, standing over me, and he says something. I can't remember what he said, and I'm like, you know, almost dead. 
and I'm walking, he's walking away to his car, and you could hear in the background, we're losing him. That was it. <laughs> so maybe I'm not really dead. Who knows? Maybe they didn't quite lose me. I don't know. Um, you, so. you never know. <laughs> you never know. I was just curious if you had ever met M- Mr. Bell, like over the years before. Uh, I know this was after he was gone, but had you ever had any No. No, I never, never met him uh, personally. I certainly saw him over the years. I mean, I've been going to Emmy since 1984, so I'd certainly seen him, and he was, uh, without question, one of the icons of the medium, um, as, as was Agnes Nixon. You know, and I, Agnes Nixon, I, I, what I loved about Agnes was that this woman was so um, unassuming, you know, so humble and so sweet. She had such a beautiful spirit about her and her gift of storytelling, just to sit there and talk to her about things about her life and hear her tell these stories was magical. And I got to work in scenes with her um, at the end when we're on ABC. I did some scenes with her where her character that she came on was in a hospital bed. And it was just, she was magical on camera as well as off. Um, She just came alive. What a beautiful, beautiful actress she was as well as a person. Um, and I, I just, I look at her that she could be on a soundstage with friends that she would bring to the show to watch taping. And every once in a while she would do that. And you, she'd be in the back behind the crew and everything. So unassuming behind the stage, behind the stages of everybody. And you wouldn't even know she was there. And you, but you have to realize that like every single person standing on that soundstage, every single one of them there and in the production office and in the, in this booth. Are there because were there because of her because of this woman, um, so people like her and Bill Bell, um, you, certainly you, you have to like praise them. They're, this medium has been going on. Guiding Light was on TV for, and radio for seventy two years, um, you know, and it's because of people like those two, uh, Bill Bell as well as Agnes Nixon, you know, and what they were able I to am. do week in and week out, you know. So high praise all the way around. Well, thank you, Vincent. Vincent, when you returned back to All My Children, you eventually won a well-deserved Emmy. What is it like to win an Emmy? <laughs> it's fantastic. It really is. I mean, I have I, been nominated four times. Um, I was, um, my first nomination was as Lujak on Guiding Light. Um, and then years later, as David Hayward uh, in the early 2000s, and then I had left the show to do Young and the Restless and to come back after that time um, and then to be nominated soon after because of the work that I'd done towards the end of the year before, which was wonderful. Um, I mean, the material was wonderful. Chuck Pratt, who was the head writer at the time, he's the one that called me. The day I finished my contract on Young and the Restless, I get a voicemail from him. Um, he had just started working on the show, writing for the show. He had written for me when I was on Santa Barbara. He had also been a writer on Melrose Place, and he told me once I ran into him at a church here in Los Angeles back in the early 90s, he had told me that he had a role that he had written thinking of me, and he wanted me to be able to do it, but I couldn't get out of um, Guiding Light at the time to do it on Melrose Place. So Chuck called me the day that I finished my contract on Young and the Restless, left a message saying that he wanted my character back on the show. He had a great storyline that the show really could use the character. And he said, come back onto the show. Let me help you win an Emmy. (laughs) Um, 
I obviously <laughs> called him back. <laughs> we talked. I said, I'm going to be in New York next week when we get together. And we did. I met him at the offices. We sat down for like an hour, talked about what he was thinking about the character. I love the idea. I uh, love the story. And so we made it happen. And there I was like eight months later, standing on the stage holding the Emmy. And thanks to him and um, bringing me back on the show. So I was very grateful for that. Um, well, and congratulations. Also then, well, thank you. Thank you. And then I was nominated for my role on Days of Our Lives, uh, you know, back in 2015 for the role of Deimos that I loved doing. It was a great character with a wonderful backstory. And got to work with people like John Aniston, which I adored. Um, yeah, so it's been, it's great. The Emmys, I mean, my first Emmys that I ever went to was 1984. was at the Waldorf Astoria. And I was new to television at the time. Um, I'd been on the show as Lou Jack, and I was, um, I was on the show maybe about seven, eight months. And I was so overwhelmed, frankly, walking through the lobby of, of the world of Astoria where they had the roped off the fans on either side, walking up the stairs and down the lobby, and they were all screaming. And I mean, I was so intimidated, frankly, by it because it was something I'd never experienced <laughs> before. And I was, I was sitting there in the audience uh, for the whole Emmys at the, in, there in the banquet room. And I just was, I think my heart was racing the whole time because it just was so otherworldly to me. I had never experienced anything like that before. And I just, I didn't know how to act. It felt really, really weird for me. Um, but yeah, so my, my experience in all the years of going to Emmys, I'm, I'm not like that anymore. Um, I'm probably a little more jaded by it. <laughs> I certainly am. Um, even when they were uh, doing it at Radio City Music Hall, I didn't really, I, I rarely walk down the red carpet. I would go in a back way right before the show and go watch it and leave. Um, yeah, I mean, it happens in time. It just, you know, you, you do what you feel comfortable doing at the time. So that's it. Yeah. Recently, you appeared on The Bold and the Beautiful. Yes. I shouldn't be surprised that that happened. How did that come to fruition for you, Vincent, to have an opportunity was, to be on Bold and Beautiful? Well, it was actually, it was a role that was offered to me. Bill Bell contacted my, my manager, um, or his office, that, I don't know if it was him, I think it was him, called and said, we have a role um, to come on the show as a doctor, Dr. Jordan Armstrong. <laughs> That's a great name. That's right. Um, that is a good name. Yeah, I love it. It's a great name. And we have a, a role it was for a few days, and um, yeah, so it was a recurring job, um, and I had never worked on that show before. I, you know, one of the greatest things about working this medium all the years that I have, it's been, it's been like 37 years since I started guiding, uh, Blue Jack and Guiding Light. I've had the opportunity to work with so many people in front of the camera as well as behind the camera from all the different shows. I mean, whether it's directors, some writers, production staff, actors, um, you know, people, boom operators, people on the set. So whenever I go on a set now, I feel like I know at least 30% of the people there that I've worked with them. <laughs> I have great relationships with them. And that was, that was no exception with all the beautiful. I walked on set there and it felt like, you know, a homecoming week. Um, you know, just getting even working. My first director was Tony Pasquarelli, who was on all my children for years as an AD on there. And then also worked in editing, um, for Young and the Restless and Bold and Beautiful and, and also all my children. So I've known him for many years and he's a dear, dear man. And um, he was my first director and working opposite Torsten. Hey. Um, That's right. You know, who's an incredible talent. And, you know, and I, I got to tell you, I mean, I just, especially from watching the shows during that time, because I certainly wanted to get a sense of the show and the way that it's being done. Um, 
to see uh, to see his work, Torsten on there and and Kelly's uh, Kevin Kelly, to see hers on there. They both are so wonderful. Um, the performances are fantastic, and I and I shared that with them at the time because there were several episodes while working together that they had some really substantive scenes together, which they seemed to write a lot of them for them. Um, but they just carry it so well. And everybody, the, the whole show, everybody was great. And yeah, I love it. So who knows? Maybe somebody will, uh, you know, get sick again and, and they'll need a doctor to come in. Um, <laughs> it's funny. It happens that would that be, uh, well, you don't want anybody to get sick, even a character, but I have to say no. to have you no. be a part of the cast, Vincent, I mean, I tell you what, as a writer, I would be going, you know what, let's find a long-term story as long as Vincent is interested and keep him around for a while. You're just so I good. would love it. I'd love it. I love it. I love being able to work in those, in, you know, those long, long story mediums. Um, it's exciting. You know, you get a beginning and hopefully a very long middle, and, you know, and not necessarily any end in sight. That's great. Uh, it's very different from working in a movie where you have a beginning, a middle, and an end. It's just this is a character you start, and they develop it with you in the course of the time while you're on the show, and that's always exciting. It's great. It really is. And, you know, an actor has to memorize lines, of course, but for daytime, the, boy, there's a lot of material to memorize. But I was thinking, Vincent, for that character it becomes more than just memorizing lines. You have to remember how to pronounce certain words the right way, a medical terminology. Absolutely. <laughs> Medicalese. Is I've, that I've challenging? I've become much more accustomed because David Hayward playing for 13 years a doctor, and I was also Dr. Scott Clark on, on Santa right. Barbara as well. So all these years of doing Medicalese, I've become rather proficient at it. Don't ask me to repeat it <laughs> after I've done, after it comes out of my mouth, and I go home and learn the next script. But I, you know, I, I know how to get myself to the place where I can memorize everything. Um, so it's really fun. It's, yeah, it's great. And, you know, like I was saying, though, about the developing of a character with the writers and producers, um, because, uh, you know, honestly, when you first come on a show, it's the beginning of a character. And they have some sense of an arc for a period of time. But it has to develop beyond that, um, obviously. And they don't know yet what it's going to be like. So, I mean, a perfect example is like with Josh Griffith, who was the head writer, um, not only of Young and the Restless, he came on after uh, Lindbergh Latham. He's the one that brought in the whole um, the, the gambling um, addiction, which was great. He was the head writer on Days of Our Lives. And the, the difference on Days of Our Lives with other shows, was, which was astounding to me, was that they were like five, six months ahead of schedule when I first started the show. So everything that I was taping in the beginning would not be seen for like five, six months, which is very rare. Um, it can be anywhere as little as two weeks, you know, before it airs, and sometimes a month and a half. If it's two months, it's usually because they're, they're stocking up shows because they're going to be taking like a two-week break, you know, for the summer or for the holidays. But that show is five, six months ahead. And Josh would, oftentimes, he would stand on set off camera while you're doing your scenes because he wanted to see how things were playing at that time, because once it's done, there's no correcting it. You know, they need to know that his story is playing right. And he used that as the opportunity for him to watch scenes while we were taping. And he would then change his story for the character. He would change relationships to the character based on what he was seeing that he liked or didn't like. So he really did sort of develop the character Deimos significantly from when I first saw on the show because of what he saw that we were doing together. 
um, my character and, and some of the other actors with their character. So that's the way that it works in these type of stories where it's that long form, um, which is very different from like a play or a movie, which like I said, has, both have a beginning, middle, and an end. You know where the story's going when you first pick up the script and start working on it. So that's an exciting process, frankly, because you're a part of the process and the developing of the character. And that's something I love being a part of. That's awesome. So if Bold and Beautiful wants to do it, I'd be happy for that. <laughs> so it'd be there great. you go. Do you have any idea why Days of Our Lives decides to film so far in advance? I mean, right now they look brilliant with everything that has happened to have yeah. all of those episodes. But I have to say, I always thought that was very interesting to me to film so far in advance. Yeah, it was rather prescient of them, I think, that, <laughs> that they may need to have six months in the can in case something that happens on a global scale. Right, right. Um, I don't know if, they, if that was, I don't think it was intentional, <laughs> but it turned out to their benefit without yes. question. Um, but now they're going to be back, they're going to be back on the same playing field with the That's other shows. That's right, they are, aren't of they? Of having like maybe, maybe a month in the can, <laughs> you know, basically. So, and not to start from there and start working again. So that's kind of interesting. But yeah, I, I don't know why. I don't have an answer for that. Um, for whatever reason, that was the decision that was made by, uh, you know, by the producers and by the network. Um, and Sony is also part of that process as well with NBC. Um, and Ken Corday. I mean, that was that what they had decided. They didn't call me and give me the information as to why they were doing it. So, but as an actor, I just sort of work and do and work on the lines they give me. That's my job. So, and you do it well, Vincent. My final question for you, well, you. is perhaps one of just perspective. Uh, you are the perfect okay. actor and person to ask this to. Let me just say before I do okay. that, yes. I don't know if I can live up to that. I don't know if I can live up to that, that, that introduction, but we'll see. We'll see what happens. Go I ahead. think you can, but I hear you. Uh, no pressure on my part, of course. But look, technology, of course, that's the easy part to my question. Technology over the years has obviously changed. But I'm talking about the actual sure. filming experience. For example, blocking, taping the pacing of filming an episode. When you think back mm -hmm. now today, for example, your recent Bold and Beautiful experience, has it evolved into a different type of pacing when it comes to filming? Or is it very similar like decades ago? It's absolutely has changed. It's evolved, let's say. Okay. Um, and it's because the production demands have changed. Um, where budget is concerned and scheduling and timing. Um, so yeah, without question. I mean, when I first started on as guiding light in guiding light, you really, we really were doing one episode per day, you know, when clean episode, you just did that, went home, worked on the next episode. Um, the scenes were also longer. They seemed to my memory. It's like, it was, it wasn't unusual to have scenes that were eight, 10, 12 pages. Okay. Um, and I even I know that's supported by some of the scenes that I see on YouTube that people post um, with me and with Beth and Lou Jack, um, you know, and others as well. They're, they could be long scenes. Um, as time has gone by, scenes have gotten shorter. They're sometimes like two and three pages. If you get a five-page scene, that's a long scene. Um, but it's also the pace is very fast now. Um, you're oftentimes, you know, doing camera blocking and you're going right to taping, taping your rehearsal. Um, so that if it goes well, they can move on. And they also now, they're doing more like eight shows a week. 
you know, every week. Um, and they're just, when you go to work every day, it's not necessarily just your scenes from that episode, from one episode. It could be scenes from three episodes because for production, um, you know, considerations, they want to make sure they get all the scenes in this one set for the week. Okay. So you may be doing a lot more episodes in one scene as a, in one shooting day uh, as a character. Uh, so that happens a lot. And the, the number of pages that are being done are typically now between 105, maybe, to 120, 125 per day. Um, that's a significant amount more than there was years ago. I would say probably back then they were doing more like 70 pages. Um, so, yeah, the, the pace is rapid. And... Uh, for actors that come on that are not used to that pace, it's very daunting because they're not familiar with that. But most of us that have been doing it, this is, you just you go and stride. You know, you do it. You know at the end of the day, it gets done. Everybody goes home, and you start the next day again. That's where the myth of Sissy first comes in. You feel like you finished pushing that boulder up the hill, and then it's done. The sun is going down. It rolls back down, and you know you have to start there again the next day. And that's it, you know, but there's a joy to it. There's a real joy in, in the experience of it. And that's what I hold on to more than anything. It's been great. Vincent, I want to thank you so much for being my extra special guest today. I've long admired your career well, you. and, and your accomplishments, but and just a, 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 a fun actor to watch perform. I've always enjoyed any scene that, I've, well, you. that you've been a part of. And I just want to thank you for being my guest today and for your time. All right. That's my, it's my pleasure, Stephen. Thank you so much for inviting me and allowing me to take part in this with you. It's, it was a nice experience. Thank you. Hollywood and Beyond podcast created, produced, and hosted by actor and writer Stephen Brittingham. Thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.